This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Listeners, and welcome to the Murky Waters podcast. My name is Michael Heltzinger, and if this is your first time listening in, Murky Waters is about interviewing the passionate people who study sharks. On today's episode, we take a dive into the life of the shark's majestic and mysterious cousin, the manta ray. And I interview a scientist, Lauren Peel, who's been studying manta ray movements of the Seychelles. I ask her basic questions from how they reproduce, who their main predators are, what sensors do they use, and how fast can manta rays swim. The guest, Lauren Peel, just completed a PhD with the Australian Institute of Marine Science and the University of Western Australia. She is also the project leader of the Manta Ray Trust and the Save Our Seas Foundation Seychelles Manta Ray Project. So without further ado, let's listen to what Lauren has to share. G'day, Lauren. Great to have you on the show. Could you please introduce yourself and tell the listeners what inspired you to study sharks? So my name's Lauren. I've been pretty much obsessed with sharks and rays and fish since I was a little kid. My family used to take us up to the Ningaloo Reef every year and have to drag me out of the water when I wanted to just snorkel all the time. But in terms of sharks and rays, my real passion for them was really sparked during my honours year at UWA. I was looking at the visual system of Port Jackson sharks and how they might perceive their environment and behave as a result. And it's just been sharks and rays since then. They're just fascinating animals. They are indeed. Lauren, you were my field specialist and skipper in South Africa (laughs) in Mossel Bay. Yes, I I was. (laughs) (laughs) When I did an internship there in 2014. Could you tell us what you were doing over in South Africa and also some of your closest encounters with sharks over there? So when I finished my honours year, I volunteered at Oceans Research, which is a marine research internship in South Africa. And I subsequently went back to volunteer there as a field specialist. And while I was there, our role was basically to lead a number of marine research projects with our primary one looking at the population dynamics of white sharks. So every day we'd go out on the water and take photos of the dorsal fins of white sharks to get an idea of how many individuals we're seeing and also how they were moving throughout the bay we were working in. You've also recently completed a PhD studying manta rays. Yes, I have, (laughs) very excitingly. (laughs) Oh, congratulations as well about that. Could you tell us a bit about your PhD journey? So firstly, why manta rays? And also a bit about where you did your study, how you did it, and anything else that you discovered in your research. So the opportunity came up to work with manta rays in Seychelles where very little was known about animals and just start answering questions that sound really simple but we had no idea about. So how big was the population size? Where were the animals moving? When they were in different places? What they're feeding on and what that means for their ecological role? I was fortunate enough to get involved with that with the Save Our Seas Foundation and the Manta Trust Mm -hmm. and was based at the University of Western Australia while I completed my research. What is the Seychelles Manta Ray Project? 
The Seychelles Manta Ray Project is a project that's been established through the Save Our Foundation and the Manta Trust. Mm -hmm. And it's basically the national manta program for manta rays in Seychelles. So I've been leading that as part of my PhD for the last four years. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to basically engage as much of the community with manta research as possible throughout Seychelles and have Mm -hmm. people on the lookout for mantas for us and submitting their photos. I really like the idea of this community involvement. How are you engaging with the community more? When I was in Seychelles a few years ago for both of my trips, I organised talks at the university to just spread the word about the Seychelles Manta project. Mm -hmm. And I also manage a Facebook page for the project where I reach out to local dive communities and other groups just to make them aware of the work we're doing. That information that you're gathering for your PhD about their movements and things like that, how is that information valuable? The primary goal of this was to better understand the conservation needs of manta rays in Seychelles. Globally, manta rays are a vulnerable species. They've seen large population declines around the world in the last 30 to 70 years. So what we wanted to do was get an idea of when and where the mantas were in Seychelles so that we could start looking at developing marine protected areas and other conservation strategies to protect them in that part of the Western Indian Ocean. Cool. And can you just define a marine protected area for those of listeners that don't really know what an MPA is? There's different scales of them, but basically they're just an area that's designated either as completely no fishing zone or an area with certain fishing types are restricted, kind of like a a reserve but for animals underwater. What information do you think scientists need to gather and like the stuff that you got when designating marine protected areas? That's a very (laughs) big question, (laughs) but the spatial component is really important. So understanding Mm -hmm. how your animals are moving for animals such as manta rays that tend to aggregate in certain areas at certain times of the year, rather than designating an MPA that covers the whole area that they occupy, we can target aggregation areas, which means that we don't have to cover as big of an area with our limited efforts and resources at times. Yep. So it's understanding where the animals are going, why they're in the places they are in, whether it's due to prey availability or for processes like reproduction and mating Mm -hmm. and all of that comes together to give us an understanding of if MPAs are going to help to protect the animals that you're after conserving. And that movement stuff that you're talking about, how do you gather that information? We were fortunate enough to be able to use a number of techniques. The one people are probably most familiar with is actually tagging and tracking the animals. What you can do is either put an acoustic tag on the manta ray And we use an array of listening stations in the water that basically listen for the unique ping that these tags emit. We can use that to track where the mantas are going. We can use satellite tags that actually relay the information about the position data to satellites. And for mantas which have unique spot patterns on their bellies, we can also use things as simple as photographs. Photographing a manta in one place and subsequently photographing it in another tells us for sure that the animal has moved between those places in the time frame between the photographs were collected. We have a few different options we can use and all of it combines together to our understanding of the movement patterns of the species. That's really cool. So they have these unique, is it just spot patterns on their belly? Yeah, it's basically like a fingerprint on their stomach. They've got a nice white belly in most cases. Some of them are pitch black, which makes it a bit harder. They're consistent throughout the lifetime of each manta. Mm-hmm. So we can build up these libraries of photographs and actually count how many mantas we have in our populations and also monitor where they're moving. So the photo catalogue that you're using in the Seychelles or you're building on, 
has that been collated with like other photo bases and photo catalogues from around the world? Not for Seychelles at the moment. We're in the process of doing that. It's a yeah. very tedious process to compare all <laughs> yeah. of the photos. I bet it um, is. <laughs> but it's, it's definitely in the works. Yeah, it's just finding one place to put it all is the tricky part. But we're definitely mm-hmm. collaborating with other groups and other NGOs to see if we've got any larger scale movements between our populations. Cool. And for some people like me who may have footage of manta rays, because I have some from just snorkeling and diving up at the Ningaloo Reef, how can we contribute our photos if you can use them in these citizen science projects? So if you head to the Manta Trust website, there's Mm -hmm. a section on the website where you can upload your photos and videos and ID the Manta. If you can accompany it with time and location data as well, that's also really valuable so we know Mm -hmm. where the sighting came from. And then you'll get told if your Manta's been seen before, if it has been, what its name is and where it's been seen in the past. Mm -hmm. And then if you find a new Manta, you'll also get to name it. And that individual will then get added to the database for your population. And yeah, it's just a really great way to get people looking for mantas and helping us to track them. How about some of the standout manta names? We have quite a few good ones that I really like. We've got Bat Manta, which is always fun. <laughs> we had Manta Claus come see us at Christmas one year. Oh, no. Nice. Um, God of Stingrays is one of my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there was one really funny one. I had read up online and it was Netflix and Krill. Was that one? Love it. I absolutely love it. (laughs) And Loz, what have you been doing since you've finished your PhD? Lots of things, actually. I've attended a few conferences to present my work. I'm in the process of actually finalizing my thesis for the final submission, which is really exciting. You? I've managed to get a couple of the chapters published, so I'm hoping to get the last two published very soon. And yeah, just looking for other ways to expand on our knowledge of the mantis and Seychelles and learn more about what's happening that side because I still have so many questions. Do you think you'll keep pursuing uh, the mantis and Seychelles or mantis around the world or just mantis in general? Yeah, I'd love to stay involved with mantis. Obviously, I'm not just up on mantis as well. But yeah, if we can keep the Seychelles research moving forward, I'll be very happy with that. I want to inform listeners on everything they should know and probably didn't know about manta rays. So I have a lot of questions I just want to ask you, Lars. Yep. Where are manta rays found throughout the world? Good question. So manta rays have a circumtropical distribution. So Mm -hmm. while they tend to aggregate at specific sites where they're found, they're usually in tropical waters, especially for the reef mantas. Do they travel in vast migrations? Surprisingly, not from what we've seen so far. So there's two species of manta ray that are currently recognised, the reef and the oceanic manta. Mm -hmm. The reef is the smaller of the two. They get up to 5.5 metre wingspans and they tend to be seen on shallow coral reef Mm -hmm. areas. Then we have the oceanic mantas, which get to a larger size of about 7 metre wingspans. Um, And we usually see these in deeper offshore environments they tend to be a lot more transient rather than staying in one space for a long time. And for a long time, we thought that meant that they were performing these really long migrations. But so far, all of our tracking data has suggested that they do tend to stay quite close to home. We haven't seen any ocean basin scale movements as of yet. And is that from the acoustic tagging? Is that right? Uh, From the satellite tagging. Oh, from the satellite. Yeah, so acoustic tags are really good for looking at finer scale habitat use. Mm -hmm. Um, So acoustic tags can only be picked up 
by those listening stations, which are known as receivers. Mm-hmm. So you only know if a manta is in a certain place if you have a receiver there. Whereas the satellite tags aren't reliant on a designated array. So because they're communicating via satellite, that's when we can pick up the larger scale movements. And I have a question about manta ray cleaning stations. Yeah. What are these manta ray cleaning stations and what's actually happening with the manta rays? Manta ray cleaning stations are, are special places on the reef. They tend to be elevated coral bombies and things like that where a lot of small cleaner fish are resident. And the manta rays use them like a day spa. So after they've finished feeding, they come and hover over the cleaning station and the cleaner fish clean up any wounds they might have and take parasites off of their bodies. It's just a way of the animals to keep clean. Mm-hmm. For the manta rays, they also play a really important role, or we think they do, in the social behaviour of the species. Mm-hmm. So by returning to these sites on the reef fairly repeatedly, there's a good chance you're going to see another manta ray, and that can be important for courtship behaviour, social interactions. Uh, we've still got a lot to learn about that. Can you tell us a bit about this courtship behaviour? Manta rays have the largest brain-to-body mass ratio of any fish we've studied to date. Yep. So usually when you get in the water with them, you can see that they're paying attention to you. They don't tend to passively swim past. You can see they're thinking about what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And they display a lot of these group behaviours where they feed together in ways like chain feeding, where they can improve how much zooplankton they can feed on. Mm-hmm. But also they tend to display these really elaborate courtship displays. Mm-hmm. So you can have circumstances where multiple males are following after a female at one time, often at high speed, performing mm-hmm. lots of intricate turns and tumbles, big sort of grand chase to get the female's attention. <laughs> <laughs> Is this quite rare for a, a fish to have such a social tendency? I guess you could say it's rare. We've still got a lot to learn about social behaviour in general in the marine mm-hmm. environment. It's definitely something that has gained a lot of interest in recent years, even for sharks as well. There's a lot of really neat statistical ways we can look at how frequently animals interact with each other. And the same is true for manta rays. We're starting to get a better idea of if we always see the same two together or if some groups of animals tend to be with each other more than others. In terms of actually understanding these social interactions, it's a fairly new field of research for marine elasmobranchs in general. Mm -hmm. Can you just tell the listeners what elasmobranchs are? So elasmobranchs are the group of cartilaginous fish which represent the sharks, rays and the skates. I want to ask you a question about their feeding ecology. What do manta Mm -hmm. rays feed on and how do they do it? So manta rays feed on zooplankton in the water column and they're filter feeders. So if you've seen a manta, you'll know they have a really large mouth and they move through the water column and basically filter the zooplankton out as they swim. Mm -hmm. Most of the time we've seen them in Seychelles at least feeding close to the surface of the water, just on zooplankton in the water column. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you have animals doing barrel rolls in the water column. If there's a really dense patch of plankton, it's a good way for them to stay in that patch and keep feeding. Oh, the barrel rolls. It's really amazing. Mm -hmm. Other times they'll follow one behind each other in a chain-like formation and that helps to improve how much zooplankton they can eat as well. And we're also starting to learn a lot more about how they might forage at night. So when zooplankton emerges from the seafloor, if they're feeding closer to the seabed, and also if they're traveling into deeper waters and feeding on deep sea zooplankton as well, we're still trying to figure out how much of their diet those sorts of animals comprise.
Is zooplankton quite a nutritious source of food for manta rays? Yes, but because they're big, they have to eat a lot of it. The downside to being really big is you need a lot of energy, but Mm -hmm. by being bigger, you can filter more food from the water column. So what we see with the mantas is as they're moving along and swimming, they'll have their mouth wide open while they're feeding. But if Mm -hmm. the zooplankton density gets too low, they'll close their mouth, make themselves more streamlined and move on to the next foraging opportunity. Work out of Eastern Australia has shown that there is actually a threshold density that zooplankton needs to reach for it to become economical, basically, if the mantas start feeding. So while it's a good source of food, there needs to be enough of it to warrant the drag you're going to put on yourself by opening your mouth. Yeah. It sounds like manta rays predominantly feed on zooplankton. Do they also feed on other species or like any smaller species of fish? They do feed on a lot of different types of zooplankton, but in terms of targeting other species, they might incidentally ingest them, but not seeking them out. I've got a question just in terms of them opening their mouths in such a way. Is there a concern for them consuming lots of microplastics in the ocean? Is that a thing? Very, very much. Again, this is something we're still learning a lot more about. But in places where manta aggregations occur close to populated areas, plastic pollution is a really big issue. Um, Mm -hmm. Mantas can't spit out what they don't like, so they end up ingesting a lot of the plastic. And the same is true for other filter feeding animals as well, so basking Mm -hmm. sharks, whale sharks. If the plastic's in front of them, they're probably going to encounter it. So a -hmm. big problem for these animals. When they're swimming like sharks, are they opening their mouths to oxygenate the water through their gills? They pass water through their gills as they swim. They never really stop moving and they're negatively buoyant. So even when they're stopping at cleaning stations, they either need to face themselves into the current to sort of give themselves a bit of lift. So they've continuously got water moving over their gills. Mm -hmm. Seen mantras in the wild in large groups. Why are they in these large groups? This comes down to the feeding more often than not. Manta rays are very good at finding dense parts of plankton and you'll usually see large aggregations occur when there's a lot of food in one place. Mm-hmm. So one of the biggest aggregations occurs in a place in the Maldives and you can have upwards of 250 manta rays feeding at the same time on this upwelling of zooplankton that happens at certain times of the year. So the animals knowing that this food is available and it's a reliable food source at a certain part of time is the reason you see a lot of them all together. Wow, 200 manta rays, what a dream. You must want to see that, right? It's pretty close to the top of my bucket list, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Talking about their speed before, how fast can manta rays swim? So usually they're quite slowly swimming, like less than Mm -hmm. one metre per second. But I would imagine if they wanted to get away from something very quickly, they could swim a lot faster. But in general, we're not seeing them move too fast, Um, maybe between 0.5 and one metre per second. And what are their main predators? Large sharks are probably the biggest predator for manta rays. They're quite resilient to shark bites. We have seen a lot of individuals with big chunks taken out of their pectoral fins, um, often on the trailing edge. So the sharks sneak up on them, say, when they're at the cleaning station and Mm -hmm. they get caught unawares. What are their main senses and which is their strongest? Another really good question. So manta rays like sharks have a number of senses, including electroreception, sight, smell, but we still know very little about what is the strongest. Manta rays, in terms of specimens to study, are very difficult to come by, which is a good thing, but it means it's really hard to get an idea of how strong their visual system might be, how well they might smell, 
how they're sensing their environment. So at this stage, we're still not sure. How long have mantras been around for? So the genus or the group of animals that mantis fit into is thought mm-hmm. to have evolved 20 million years ago. 20 million years ago? Mm-hmm. And in that genus, is that the devil rays and stingrays and mobular rays? Is that right? So that's mobular rays, yeah. Mobular so rays. The devil rays. Oh, so the devil rays are mobular rays? Yes. Cool. Yeah. And the devil rays, they're different to manta rays? So they were up until a few years ago. We yeah. always thought that the two manta species I spoke about before were in a separate genus to mm-hmm. the other devil rays, the smaller mobular rays, mm-hmm. for a number of reasons. But genetics has recently revealed that they are all one group. There's no separation between them. So oh, now wow. manta rays are also technically mobular rays, although their common name has stuck. So they're still mantas in yeah. the general sense, but from a scientific perspective, they're mobular rays. Oh, cool. Well, that's good to know. And how yeah. do they... <laughs> differ mobular rays from stingrays and skates? So they're different in the sense that they're pelagic animals. Mm-hmm. So manta rays are constantly moving up in the water column and they're filter feeders as well. Mm-hmm. Stingrays and skates are both more benthic animals. And the difference between those two is that stingrays are live bearing, so they give birth to live young like mantas do, mm-hmm. whereas skates lay eggs. Is there a targeted fishery for manta rays? Yeah, so at the moment, the targeted fishery is focusing on mantas for their gill plates. Mm-hmm. A trend has emerged in the Asian medicine market in the last 20 to 30 years where people are basically selling manta gill plates as a traditional medicine, even though they aren't one. But it's a highly unsustainable fishery. Mantas are really slow growing, slow to reproduce. Mm-hmm. They only give birth to one pup at a time, um, and that's maybe every one to two or even three years. We're still not sure. Mm-hmm. So any sort of external pressure on these animals is really detrimental to their populations. Is there a large tourism industry? Like, are they quite um, economically beneficial for tourism? I guess the nice thing about these animals aggregating in lots of places around the world is that you can build these ecotourism businesses up around them. So manta ecotourism has become really popular in the past two decades. And the last value I saw said that the manta tourism industry brought in at least $100 million US dollars in a year overall. Wow. So the idea of these tourism industries is that you can take people out into the water with mantas. They're totally harmless and they can go and see these amazing animals in their natural environment. That's not only good from a tourism and economic point of view, but mm-hmm. in engaging people with these animals and seeing how special they are and giving them more motivation to conserve them. They are such special and beautiful animals. They look like they're flying through the water and even seeing them in real life, I think, is really cool. So if anyone's listening to this, go swim with manta rays. <laughs> yeah, I would agree. <laughs> <laughs> so, Lauren, in your study to discover what food manta rays were consuming... You were using a scientific technique called stable isotope analysis? Yeah. Could you explain to listeners how stable isotopes work and what data you need to collect to do this analysis? Sure. So for stable isotopes, the underlying theory is basically that you are what you eat. By taking small tissue samples from mantas and their prey items and other animals in the ecosystem, so other fish and things like that, Mm -hmm. what we can do is process the tissues and we look at basically the ratios of carbon and nitrogen isotopes in those tissues. And the reason we look at both of those is because carbon isotopes shift based Mm -hmm. on where you are in the world. 
basically a way of looking at whether an animal might have fed in the open ocean where mm -hmm. the values tend to be depleted or say in a lagoon where you tend to have more enriched carbon signatures. Mm -hmm. And then we also look at the nitrogen isotopes and these tend to get higher and higher the further you go up a food chain. Mm -hmm. So if you compared a small fish to a big shark, the shark would have higher nitrogen values. What you can do is put these two isotopes together and it gives you what's called an isoscape view of the ecosystem. So you can see what animals might be foraging in the same place, as well as how big of a predator they might be in that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And you call that an isoscape, was that right? Yes. So what data did you need to collect when you were trying to figure out what the manta rays were consuming? We collected a number of things. We collected manta ray tissue samples, so small mm -hmm. tissue samples, less than one centimetre by 0.5 of a centimetre big. Mm -hmm. We collected plankton samples from high up in the water column at night time, data from a previously published study from deep sea organisms to compare mm -hmm. as well. And then we also collected some fish tissues from different species of fish on the reef where I was working in Seychelles. Mm -hmm. So we could compare not only what the mantas might be eating with the different zooplankton communities, but look at how that relates to other animals on the reef and what mm -hmm. that might mean for the role manta rays play in that environment. And what did you find out about this role? Have you published a paper or are you about to publish something about this? Yeah, so we actually have a publication coming out soon, which will be really exciting on our stable isotope work. And what we were able to do with our work was to look at the ability for the mantas at Daros Island in Seychelles, where I was working, to forage throughout the whole day and also to move away from Daros Island and return to the reefs. And then the flow-on effects of that feeding behaviour on their ability to deliver nutrients to the reef through defecation and excretion. So zooplankton blooms or accumulations are highly variable in time and space. The mm -hmm. fact that mantas are able to harness this resource and then deliver the nutrients from it to the reef is quite a unique ecological role for these animals at remote coral systems like in Seychelles. Wow, Loz, I can't wait to see this paper. I want to take a turn and talk about what you think is the biggest threat to manta ray populations right now. So right now, the unsustainable fisheries are probably the most significant threat to manta rays, mm -hmm. just because the impacts of those fishing pressures are so immediate and long-lasting. If there's any sort of impact to a manta ray population, it takes them decades to recover from it. So we really need to start stemming this unnecessary fishing, stopping the fisheries, promoting ecotourism, and also using that to stem this overall idea of, I guess, community value of these marine systems. That's a direct fishery you're talking about. Is there also a big concern with bycatch? Yeah, so they're also highly susceptible to bycatch. As I mentioned before, with the mantas swimming through and not being able to take plastic out of their mouth, mm -hmm. um, they're also not able to disentangle themselves from fishing lines where they use gill nets. They can also get caught in long line systems if there's enough material in the water. You're talking about marine protected areas and the one in Seychelles looking at the manta movements. Mm -hmm. With everything you've just said about their biggest threats and the impact of fishing both directly and indirectly, do you personally think marine protected areas are a key conservation strategy in the future for manta ray populations? Yeah, I think the fact that these animals are aggregating reliably it's important to remember that 
putting these measures in place as a result of that isn't just beneficial to our conservation efforts, mm-hmm. but it also stops any targeted exploitation from being able to be established. So as a fisherman, if you knew that there's going to be a large, reliable aggregation of these animals in a certain place, it wouldn't take long to have a large impact on those animals. Yeah. From both points of view in terms of maximising often limited conservation-based resources Mm -hmm. and also restricting any sort of unwanted fishing pressures to develop marine protected areas can have quite a big impact. And in these protected areas, can you still do things like ecotourism and go diving with mandrays? The protected areas is more just to regulate specific activities in the water, so reducing fishing pressures, reducing how many boats go into those areas. So ecotourism would still be an opportunity to engage people with manta rays and manta ray conservation. Do scientists have any idea of how climate change may affect manta ray populations? So we're still learning a lot about how and where mantas move. We're also slowly improving technologies to map where their prey is, which is one of the most challenging things about studying these animals is it's really hard to know fine-scale information about zooplankton availability and densities. Mm-hmm. But in terms of climate change, I think that would be the largest impact that they would be facing is shifting ocean conditions and currents and the flow-on effects that that would have to the accumulation of zooplankton prey in the water column for manta rays. I was reading a study the other day that estimated that zooplankton abundance would decrease by around 10% in the tropics under Mm -hmm. some climate change scenarios. Already you're getting an idea that their food is going to be less available. Has there been any studies of them in captivity? Can manta rays be kept in captivity? They have been kept in captivity. Most of what we know about their reproduction comes from a captive manta ray. So there was a manta ray held in an aquarium in Japan, which gave birth to three pups in the Mm -hmm. space of, I believe, two to five years. Her giving birth to those pups is basically all we know about manta ray reproduction. It's very hard to track it in the wild No one's seen a manta ray give birth in the wild. Is there any advice you'd want to give to anyone out there who is interested in studying marine science? Firstly, never stop being excited about the world around you. There's nothing wrong with being excited. And my other main piece of advice is to just take the opportunities when they come. No one's going to hand you anything in life. So if you're excited and eager to help out, ask if there's anything you can do Asking to help people is always a good way of finding out about opportunities you didn't know existed. And it's also a really great way to learn new things that you might not have even known about before or known you were passionate about before. I love that, to be excited about the natural world because I think the natural world is just so exciting. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) My last question, Loz, is if you could get one message across to everyone listening about rays or sharks and just the ocean in general what would that be? To recognise that it's one big system. Everything and everyone has a role to play in the way that ecosystems work and function and we're very lucky to be in the place where we can enjoy everything the world has to offer. So it's all about, again, being excited, being inspired and making conscious decisions about what you do with your life that makes sure we can continue to be excited about the world around us. So thank you so much, Lauren, for coming on the show and telling us everything about manta rays. Thank you so much. It was awesome to be here and to chat with you. And chums, that's a wrap. 
Lauren has done some incredible work in the Seychelles and I'll be sharing her research as well as some of the footage she's taken whilst out in the field. So make sure to check out the Murky Waters Instagram and Facebook pages. You can also find the Seychelles Manta Ray Trust at www.mantatrust.com where you can check out ID shots of mantas, see the current research happening and even donate and help conservation by adopting your own manta ray. This podcast is created by Michael Helzinger, but it wouldn't happen without your support. So again, listeners, I really appreciate it and thank you for listening today. Please share the podcast around and if you want to help out and keep these episodes coming, subscribe to the podcast online with Apple Podcasts where you can keep up to date with each episode. Let me know what you think by leaving a review and of course, if you have any questions or anything, please feel free to send me a message. I would love to hear some feedback. Thank you to AuraFM. You guys are the best. And I wouldn't be able to run this podcast without you. And also everyone else who's helped out along the way. A big and a hearty thank you. I also want to thank a friend and DJ, Kieran O'Regan, for the introductory music track. And also the talented West Australian musician Michael Dunstan for this background instrumental. And finally, Lauren Peel, our exceptional guest today. Thank you, Lauren, for coming on the show and firstly, showing us how interesting and cool manta rays are. And secondly, for your research and contribution to the understanding and by reminding us all to be excited about the natural world. Take care, people, of both yourselves and the planet, and I'll see you next episode. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.